Welcome to the Party Pro Toolkit, sharing stories and ideas to empower participants and producers of nightlife, festivals, and burner culture. Greetings, this is Melina Liu, and you're listening to the Party Pro Toolkit. Since the invention of electricity, we have had nightlife in our cities, offering a whole other experience from that of the daytime civic life. The nightlife is about socializing, experimenting, networking, and expressing the aspects of oneself that we may not be able to expose at our day jobs. How interesting is the contrast between those two terms, our day jobs compared with our nightlife? It speaks to the duality of our lives and these two worlds that we live between. Most city government officials operate on a 9 to 5, Monday through Friday schedule. This is their day job. Until recently, cities did not have official nightlife governance, an advocate or liaison between the many layers of the nighttime ecosystem. There is a balance in this ecosystem which has many stakeholders involved. The nightlife venues, which generate the nighttime economy and support many facets of artists within it. The residents of the neighborhood, law enforcement, which responds to the complaints or issues. The fire marshal, who sets the standards for safety. And the city government, which sets policy related to nightlife, often based on the complaints they would receive from the residents or other entities. This is a tricky balance and every voice is important, which is where the role of the nightlife mayor comes I'd only recently learned about the implementation of nightlife mayors in major international cities, a movement which began with Merrick Milan, the first night mayor, as he calls it, in Amsterdam in 2014. Since then, he's been able to work with local government and the residents to find solutions to make adjustments to long-time nightlife issues, such as street noise. He supported the zoning of a 24-hour nightlife district in the city, which at first may seem counterintuitive for solving the issue of street noise. However, this allowed the nighttime patrons to have a more natural flow throughout the evening rather than ejecting all patrons from every venue at the exact same time. These are the kinds of solutions that can be found through nightlife governance. Since the appointment of Milan and Amsterdam, other cities have caught on, appointing their own representative of nightlife governance. Paris, London, Zurich, Washington, D.C. are among over 30 cities that have introduced a form of nightlife governance through an office of nightlife, a nightlife advisory board, and or a nightlife mayor. In the case of New York, Mayor de Blasio implemented all three. He appointed Ariel Palitz as the first nightlife mayor of New York, formally titled as the Senior Executive Director for the New York City Office of Nightlife at the Mayor's Office of Media and Entertainment. I was able to get connected to Ariel through Olympia Kazi, member of the Nightlife Advisory Board and the New York City Artist Coalition, an advocacy group for artists which has organized mediation talks around the March raids and rallied behind the reversal of the cabaret law, both which are hot-button topics currently in the New York nightlife scene. I rode the elevator to the 27th floor of Manhattan City Hall on November 9, 2018 to meet with the first nightlife mayor of New York, Ariel Pallets. She filled me in on growing up in New York, her connection to the city, and her experience so far working in nightlife governance. She also shares with us some of the things she learned from running the Sutra Lounge, an inclusive, diverse, and multifaceted nightclub in Manhattan, which she owned and operated for 10 years. What is your experience working in the nightlife here, and what is it that you love about this city? <laughs> um, well, I'm a native New Yorker, born and raised, and so I grew up with a very real um, appre appreciation and exposure for 
the diversity and energy and sort of the level playing field that New York City brings to um, people from all over the world and of all backgrounds. And um, having grown up within that, I really felt the place that I was most drawn and where that was even most represented really was in nightclubs. Um, and it's sort of like, I guess, in a way, like the subway <laughs> above ground, but uh, with a DJ and better lighting. Um, and, you know, when you grow up in New York, there's like a whole period of time where you sort of don't really have much to do and where to go. You go from, from sort of like spin the bottle to bottle service is sort of what I say. So I think that for me, once I was old enough to go out and me and my friends were going to nightclubs like, you know, Red Zone, Mars, The Tunnel, MKs, you really just get this incredible sense of like the beauty of humanity and how incredibly um, diverse it is, but also how much the same that we are and um, how we really are moved um, by similar things like a good song. Absolutely. And there's, there's something, you know, so special to getting to share time and space with people in those celebratory moments. You know, it's kind of, it's so different from meeting someone in an office mm -hmm. or, um, you know, meeting someone on the street in the daytime. It's, it's like we get to explore this other facet of ourselves and this other side of humanity that's kind of very special and unique. I think it's really where your true self is. During the day when you're in a blazer and in the office, you are really playing into um, expectations and to standards of the workforce. And you're really not who you are, you're the position that you are filling and mm -hmm. the role that you need to be doing for that organization or towards that goal at night the masks and the blazers come off and you can be who you truly are and so i think that's when you really actually meet people for you know for they're, who they're they are yeah you owned and operated suture lounge for 10 years yes and um <clears throat> can you tell me a little bit about that experience and um what it was that drew you to opening that club? Sure. Um, I'll answer the second part first. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly enough, I sort of, aside from growing up in the city and really starting going out even before college, um, when I did get to college, I was a cultural anthropology major with a religious philosophy minor studying the impact of art, music, dance, and party, um, <laughs> similarly to you. That's awesome. Um, and while I was on campus at the University of Hartford, um, I also hosted a weekly open mic jam session called The Solution a common ground for diverse expression. It sort of was uh, sprang forth from the Rodney King um, protests that were happening around the country about acceptance and diversity and getting along. Um, and so as a result of sort of this 
energy that was going on on campus and in the country, I decided to do these open mic jam sessions to create unity at the university. Wow. And I was part of an organization called Minds Over Matter. Um, and so I think that was the beginning of the realization that you could have purpose-driven parties and that um, there was meaning in, in gathering people together that could accomplish a greater goal. And so when I um, graduated, I then came back home to the city and just continued doing my open mic jam sessions at the Tunnel, SOBs, Rebar, Anarchy Cafe for like five years. Oh, wow. And I had a house band called The Solution, and I would rehearse them, and people would then show up at these clubs, and I would have a, a like a sign-in list where people would write, you know, drag queen, spoken word artist, drummer, guitarist, and then I would rotate people, rotate people in and out of The Solution. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so you did that for five, five years, years after college. Yeah. Were you doing that in parallel with working another yes, job? Yes, I had okay. day jobs the entire time. I worked at Susan Blund um, Public Relations, Rogers and Cowan Public Relations. I worked at SOB's nightclub. I worked at Sony. I worked in catering, like all these different facets, really to support this other vision. I pretty much probably got fired from all of them because I would use their uh, Xerox machines and all of their <laughs> office supplies to make flyers to pass out later at night. Um, but, you know, that's the heart of an entrepreneur, I guess. Mm -hmm. And so eventually I became an investor um, in a bar that was across the street from my house and my friends were opening it up and I thought it would be a great idea to be able to have my own venue rather than to um, keep doing my events at other places. And so I became an investor in a bar that was called The Flat Okay. on First and First. But it really, I wasn't in charge. I was the only woman out of seven men. Um, I wasn't, I didn't like the name. I didn't like the way they ran it. Um, I didn't, I was able to do some parties, but after a year, um, that venue wasn't doing very well, and they were all basically bailing out, and it was in debt, and I wound up taking it over, and renaming it, and relaunching it as Sutra Lounge, okay. a place, a common ground for diverse expression, and I ran it for 10 years. Wow. So you, you took something that was pretty much upside down and then got it back into... Yeah, within my vision. I called it Sutra because it was meant to be a place of universal love, right? Mm -hmm. um, again, a purpose-driven venue um, at the time and even throughout the city, you know, there's red rope culture and a lot of, you know, real selection um, in, in to, for entry and I just wanted a no drama door policy where people of all kinds from all backgrounds very similarly to the clubs that I went to growing up could come and represent at Sutra and that's what we did it was hip-hop reggae Latin 80s rock and roll yeah. polka Indian you know Bollywood nights uh, drag nights um, LGBTQ parties, and 
it was really, you know, a place of amazing vibe and um, great energy, and that's how I think people remember it. Yeah, and I appreciate that you kept the archives up as far as, you know, the website and the Facebook, and it was mm-hmm. really neat just going back to read uh, some of the Facebook comments. Of, it seems like that place really did hold a community space. Yes. And, you know, to be able to do that as a nightclub is um, few and far between. So I applaud you for that. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. I, I still pay for the domain every year because, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it'll be like a tree that fell in the woods. Did it happen if it doesn't happen right? online? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're shifting to these digital archives, which is such a different, you know, way of being um, from when we were growing up. You know, things have changed so much. Mm-hmm. And Although I have many, many, many... Uh, uh, notebooks and and binders filled with flyers like oh good <laughs> I have every single flyer I ever created so since archive. the 90s yeah yeah absolutely every single one virtually that's amazing yeah uh, <laughs> so in looking at that reflection of now and then in what ways has the New York City nightlife scene changed uh, since you were growing up here since you first started going out like for better, for worse, you know, in what ways has the scene changed? Well, um, the spaces have gotten smaller. Uh, back in the day, you used to have these magnanimous, huge venues like the Tunnel and MK, and you could have multiple rooms, like the Limelight, and have many different kinds of diverse experiences and people within one venue. And now, they tend to at times cater to one type of group Mm -hmm. um, and at times maybe has a little less of the diversity within the space itself. And so I find that a little less entertaining. Um, I think also because of the cost of living in the city, the city in general is tends to lose its own diversity as well. Um, Sure. which I think is really important to maintain and protect. Um, I think, you know, it's gone through a big evolution. We went from clubs to lounges to bottle service. Now bottle service isn't really that cool anymore, and it's going sort of back to larger Mm -hmm. clubs and more underground creative space. You know, I, I don't, I'm not the kind of person, even though I know a lot of my fellow natives will sort of reminisce and mourn old New York. Mm -hmm. Um, I am a very New York-centric lover of all things New York, and I accept and love it in all its stages with an optimism that we're evolving and growing and we'll always um, figure it out. Absolutely. Um, (laughs) I mean, you'll always be disappointed if you're stuck on the old. Yeah. I mean, I still think New York is super cool. It'll always be cool. It's still diverse. Mm -hmm. Um, People still come from all over the world to be here and to be themselves. And I think there was a time when making and maintaining space for those people to gather was not appreciated or taken for granted by the city, by the scene, by the the operators. And I think there's sort of a renaissance coming back to really understanding the cultural, um, not just value, but necessity for 
having and making space for the diversity of our city to gather. It's not that it's the soul of New York mm-hmm. is dead or that old New York is gone. It's still here. There just has there wasn't space for it. So I think it's creating that space again and holding space for it in order to allow it to manifest um, Which, in, in its own way, however mm-hmm. it will be. But it'll still be cool. Which is, you know, a huge opportunity of bringing in governance for nightlife and bringing in more advocacy and representation. Mm -hmm. uh, Because if we don't have that advocacy, we're at risk of losing these small independent spaces as they just get kind of taken over by, you know, the bigger uh, corporate interests that have more money, basically. So it's really good to hear that, um, you know, the people who are involved with this board and that you are thinking about the independent grassroots growth as well, because that is the vitality of a city. That's what's, you know, makes the culture so unique. Um, I also feel that it's important to have really fun, glitzy hotels, you know, (laughs) and really cool rooftops and, you know, high-end restaurants and also hole-in-the-wall like yeah, artisanal whole, I yeah, think you need the whole ecosystem exactly and I I really do tend to want to also be able to highlight the fact that it's about having choices and having the spectrum of experience and mm-hmm. even I love to be able to have a true underground you know musical DJ driven nightlife experience but then I might want to have a completely different experience another night and to know Mm -hmm. that I have that option in New York is really I think what also makes us incredibly unique absolutely I mean I just went to nowadays for the first time last night Mm -hmm. and from the outside it's just you know graffiti and warehouses and there's nothing that tells you where the door is but Mm -hmm. then you go inside and this is gorgeous space Mm -hmm. You know, it's a completely well-designed, gorgeous space, and you know, I love that about New York City yeah. and Brooklyn. You never know like, what's behind the door in New York. That's yeah. for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. Um, so, what are some of the challenges that the nightlife sector in New York City is facing, and how do you think that uh, governance can support those issues? Um, Well, from an operator standpoint, I think just affordability, the cost of doing business. Um, I think there's a lot of new legislation that the industry also is having to adjust itself around, like the minimum wage rising, um, the tip structure potentially changing, everything from even going from plastic to paper straws, like every, the cost of, and and of course, rents. Mm -hmm. Um, Also city regulations and the city agencies not always working in concert with each other in order to support the industry. And so I think up until the office was created, there was a sense that the city um, was not, didn't have its back. Mm-hmm. And also, not just the city, but the real estate climate, um, competition, the change of the way that people are socializing is has evolved so much. Back in the day, you would go to meet people in a bar or in a club to, you know, go and find somebody that you like. Now, 
you find them online and then just go meet them there and then have mm-hmm. a drink and then bounce out you know like they're the, the, the impact of social media there's just been a so much evolution and change and challenge and not really as many ways to support it through that evolution. So I think it's a big adjustment period right now. I'm happy that the Office of Nightlife is here to help through these transitions and to help Mm -hmm. ease some of the regulations and to um, support as much as possible um, the challenges that it's facing. Absolutely. But, you know, from a residential standpoint, which is also a big concern and priority for the office, we recognize that the city, even though it's huge, it's really small, Mm -hmm. you know, and we have mixed-use neighborhoods, commercial and residential, and you've got street-level hospitality and residential apartments upstairs, and there needs to be more attention paid to how we can coexist in a way that that allows residents to feel um, as though their quality of life is a priority and when they feel that way and when it is better for them they will probably complain and lash out against the industry in and of itself and so the goal is to create more comfort for residents in order to give breathing room to the industry to thrive as well and to exist mm-hmm. and to have a sort of mutual respect that is right now sort of challenged. Let's back up a little bit and talk about how these uh, the Office of Nightlife, the Nightlife Advisory Board, and then also your role as the Nightlife Mayor. How do these um, three realms intersect and like how do, um, how do they work together? Well, the Office of Nightlife uh, is housed within the Mayor's Office of Media and Entertainment. It is the first Office of Nightlife, and so because there's really no precedence to it, I really have um, the unique opportunity to be able to lay down a foundation and, and structure for not only what it looks like now, but hopefully for decades to come, and assessing the priorities of the industry and uh, the entire ecosystem. Sure. Um, My role as director allows me to have my staff, a small staff, um, to do community outreach, strategic planning and policy assessment um, in order to give recommendations to the city and to city council so that they can enact and propose legislation to be voted on. And the advisory board is actually independent of my office. Okay. They were, um, it's within the legislation that they create their own report and assessment of the state of the industry. And so they're working independently. Yeah, so they're not an oversight committee to me. They, um, they, may or may not um, advise me on certain things, but they are also advising the mayor's office um, and city council on their own report. Um, 
and we do meet with them once a month. You know, the Office of Nightlife is not an enforcement office and it's not a regulatory mm -hmm. office. We're here really to be a liaison between city agencies, the nightlife industry, the residential community, and ultimately really the world mm -hmm. um, on how New York's nightlife scene is really represented um, as far as our identity. Mm -hmm. um, in my position, I have the real like amazing opportunity to have a direct relationship with commissioners from the fire department, police department, buildings department, health department, state New York State Liquor Authority, and to be able to be a conductor in a sense mm -hmm. and to really take a look at all of the stakeholders and all of the players and see how we can best orchestrate and utilize the existing services and existing programs that are maybe just not um, in alignment with each other to be maximized for the industry. Sure, because there hasn't really been that... That conductor. Yeah. yeah. It's like, I, I like to say, it's sort of like having a nightclub with no manager. You know, it's <laughs> like <laughs> things are going to get a little wild. You yeah, know? nobody's talking to each other. Yeah, um, so it's really great to be that point of contact um, and to be able to assess how to align the, the existing resources, but also to identify where there are voids. Mm -hmm. Like for example, there is a structure in place where people might have a complaint, and then let's say a resident may have a complaint about a venue, and then it goes straight to enforcement, right? And so for me, I feel like there's a void in mediation. Sure. And so putting a lot of emphasis and time and attention on how to create um, opportunities to actually improve what it is they're complaining about so that emotions and tensions don't boil over and mm -hmm. then it really affects the whole industry, you know, in this perception of that nightlife is really the source of you know, the things that are wrong about New York versus what's great about it. In regards to the appointment of the advisory board, I'm very grateful to have this body um, available to me. Although they are independent, they also really represent a lot of the diversity and perspectives of the city and nightlife and community and so it's actually a great opportunity to be able to meet with them on a monthly basis and also to have them as resources as sure. different issues come up whether they be lgbtq whether they be um, sexual assault or or the issue of consent um, within nightlife whether it be the way that residents and nightlife um, relate with each other. So although they are independent of the Office of Nightlife and have their own purpose and mission, um, I really appreciate having this diverse group under the umbrella of the Office of Nightlife, so to speak, so that we can uh, help and work with each other. 
Sure, and I, I'm sure that offers a sounding board, you know, so that you're not uh, becoming isolated in a small group. It's like you have this whole other panel of experts and perspectives that you can reach out to and, you know, bounce ideas off of or, you know, gain additional experience. Yeah, there's a lot of great um, experience there within the DIY community and the activists um, in nightlife, nightlife activists that really help create the office and repeal cabaret law. So um, I think it, it's, I'm grateful for the fact that we, we have each other. Yeah, and I'm so grateful that an iconic city like New York is actually making these strides, you know, to kind of shift the previous systems. And, you know, this is completely new and disruptive to city government. And I find that so exciting. And I'm really grateful that you all are here and, you know, doing this work. Yeah, I think it's uh, the creation of the office in and of itself is a really great sign um, of hope um, and and really a vibrant and amazing New York nightlife scene for the future. So I heard that you've been going on a listening tour yes. uh, to different communities around the city. Uh, how's that been going? It's been really great. Um, it's a five borough listening tour here in New York. We have five boroughs, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Staten Island, Queens, and Brooklyn, Queens, Dallas, Bronx, and Manhattan. There we go. <laughs> um, so we've been we've done three of the five so far. Um, the Bronx is on the fifteenth, and in Manhattan on November twenty eighth is the grand finale at Town Hall proper, oh. which is a nearly hundred year old venue, famous for uh, people coming to speak their truth and and. Um, very excited to have it in this this type of venue we've all the venues we've chosen are uh culturally and historically relevant and beautiful spaces we felt it was important to respect the topic with having a great space mm -hmm. to gather in i think it also sets the tone sure um we've had a lot of people show up um ordinarily ordinarily at these Town hall meetings, they tend to be a real place of just complaint and grievance and tension and frustration. And they tend to lean towards mostly the residential perspective. Mm -hmm. um, at these, we've had a real um, equal representation from nightlife operators, employees, performers, patrons, as well as residents. I mean, because there's never really been a platform for them to come and speak at a town hall setting before, so. Yeah, and to not only speak to the city and state, but also for them to hear each other has been, I think, also really beneficial. Absolutely. Um, to humanize the struggles that they may be feeling and experiencing and to be able to empathize more with each other. Um, and also on stage with me, I've had um, not only elected officials like the borough presidents and council members and assembly members, but I've also on stage with me had the New York Police Department, Fire Department, Health Department, Buildings Department on stage really representing as one. Um, and I think just symbolically it's been um, really um, 
encouraging for the industry and the community to see that the city's listening and it cares mm-hmm. and it's and it's and it's coming together to address some of the issues that have not gotten all the attention it has needed and it's not just a representation of what's going on but it's really a prelude to all of the multi-agency cooperation and participation that we will be conducting after the town halls sure and um and that really speaks to the importance of humanizing other perspectives yes and that's something that I find uh, incredibly impactful in, you know, parties in party spheres and nightlife is by getting all these different people together. You're humanizing them where we get a little bit isolated in our digital spheres and, you know, the, the digital world can really connect us, but then at the same time separate us. And but I think also from a government perspective, like for them to really hear from operators and yeah, to hear what yeah, and to yeah. really feel what the struggle is really also helps them get a better perspective on how to maybe approach things in a in a different way. And you know, the same for the people who are participating in the town hall to see their representatives, to see the fire marshal, mm-hmm. you know, and to humanize the other in that yes. space as well. When actually, when I introduce all of the city and state agencies on stage, I'm like, I'd like to welcome FDNY and YPD, who I've come to find out are actual people. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's how I introduce them. <laughs> because otherwise, you know, it can really be this anonymous veil that it's hard to humanize. Yeah, like, and, like, they can just say any of these, like, uh, indist- agencies, oh, they're the worst. Well, mm-hmm. actually, it's filled with a lot of people that really do care. And I think um, giving them the opportunity to, to step up in, and to improve things also, I think, is a relief for them as well. Uh, so I've got just two more questions for okay. you. I'm crowdsourcing ideas as far as what the development of a party culture ethos would look like. Do you have any thoughts as far as like what you would include in a party ethos? I do wear a lot of different hats when it comes to that. I guess um, from a owner perspective or an operator of a, or managing a space, you know, I think really maximizing the opportunities that you can help create for other people Mm -hmm. you know as an employer um for just your regular staff i think there's just like tremendous opportunity on how important it is to give people an opportunity to make a living and um to really be good to your staff and to treat them like family and to respect Mm -hmm those people and to recognize the power you have to really help somebody um, support themselves, you know, and to be able to provide as many fair paying jobs with a real supportive, you know, positive work Mm -hmm. environment. And I feel that way about the DJs and the promoters and the artists, you know, like I, at Sutra, we, I can't tell you how many times people come up to me to to this day and tell me, you gave me my first chance to be a promoter or a DJ, you know, um, where nobody else would give me a chance because I didn't have any experience, you know. Um, I think it's important to take the opportunity you have to help 
elevate other people's art and vision. And really, when you have a space, it's really a blank canvas, mm -hmm. you know. And all you have to do as a cultivator of that space is to recognize talent and sometimes just enthusiasm and the will to do it and to to make mm -hmm. space and give opportunity for people. I like that. Yeah, that, that's a wonderful perspective I haven't quite received, <laughs> so I appreciate that. Um, so what is in your personal toolkit that you have learned along the way? Uh, so what is in your personal toolkit that you would like to share with others? I mean, I just think it's important to be a positive um, force in the world and to, I think it's, it's a very similar one to being a nightlife, a nightclub mm -hmm. owner or whatever, you know, is to um, serve where you can, help where you can, um, support where you can, um, mentor where you can. Um, I, I feel like it's really important to, you know, be genuinely interested in the people around you and even strangers if you're able to improve somebody's life and day in any way that you should. Mm-hmm. And I have found that going through the world in that way, much more has come back to me um, from living in that way of giving is really the best way to be fulfilled in the world. So that's why, you know, as a promoter, a party planner, somebody in politics, you know, I think no matter where what you're doing in your life, that to be... And it, it's, it's sort of really kind of cliche in a weird way, like be of service. And I think it's just having a purpose-driven life and a purpose-driven party and a purpose-driven career and purpose-driven relationships. Mm -hmm. And I feel like living your life with a purpose um, gives you purpose. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Arielle, for making time to meet with me today. I really appreciate it, and I look forward to following all of the good work that you're about to do here for the city. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. This project is brought to you by you, the listeners and supporters of Patreon. If you would like to support the Party Pro Toolkit by contributing $5, $10, $20 per month on Patreon, you will help this project grow as we share stories and ideas from party professionals. Support of this project will allow the research to continue in other cities across the country and around the world. To learn more, please visit PartyProToolkit.com.